listening to Venture Vignettes, a podcast that features learnings from trailblazers in entrepreneurship and investment. I'm your host, Rihanna Shaw, and today on the show, we have Miriam Rivera, Managing Director of Ulu Ventures. Thanks for tuning in. Miriam is a co-founder and managing partner of Ulu Ventures, which is one of Silicon Valley's most diverse portfolios. Ulu is an early-stage angel fund focused on IT investments and has invested in over 30 companies in the last few years with some fantastic exits. Miriam has worked at all stages of new ventures, from formation to Fortune 500 public company Google Inc. At Google, Miriam became vice president and saw Google grow from 200 employees to over 15,000. Miriam serves on many nonprofit and for-profit boards and has been voted one of the top 100 women of influence in Silicon Valley. As a first-generation college student and scholarship recipient, Miriam graduated from Stanford University, where she earned the AB, AM, and JD MBA degrees. Miriam, thanks so much for being on the show. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Uh, To kick it off, would love to hear more about your journey. You've had such a fascinating journey as a first-in-college student, an attorney, an investor, an entrepreneur, an activist. Um, You've just worn so many hats and uh, would love to hear your story, (laughs) if that's even possible, in a nutshell from you. So in a nutshell, when I first came to Stanford, I was a full scholarship kid here. I really didn't have any notion of what I wanted to be. Uh, I just knew that I had to go to college and that I had to graduate college. That was like my life goal. So in a lot of ways, it was almost not until I graduated from college that I even started thinking about what to do next. Yeah. Uh, And initially I focused on helping other students Uh, to be able to go through uh, university and um, apply to graduate school. Other, I was in a counseling kind of helping role, um, both at uh, Stanford, the UC, um, Foothill De Anza Community College, those kind Hmm. of environments, um, working with Equal Opportunity Program students and students who are interested in uh, internships, public service careers, a variety of different ways of uh, intersecting with students. And it wasn't until after I went back to law school and business school that I became interested in uh, making a transition of the for-profit sector and in particular hmm. startups. Uh, but having been in the not-for-profit community, I felt like I had to kind of get my stamps of approval. Yeah. So I worked first in a major law firm and then I worked at a major consultancy before helping to co-found a company called Outcome Software. Wow. It's really interesting that you mention sort of the idea of feeling this need, especially as you're as you're going into as you're going into the professional world to sort of think more about the nonprofit sector in some ways and to sort of be involved in the education space. And so I'm wondering, how do you feel like your nonprofit background or your background as a as a first in college student? How do you feel like that's impacted sort of the life trajectory you've taken? So it's actually been pretty influential, both in terms of my own service in mm-hmm. in terms of higher education volunteering. Uh, It's also been very important in terms of my philanthropy and what I give to tends to be focused around education. Uh, And in addition, it was one of the things that made me decide to stay in venture investing. When I started doing this, I kind of thought of it as like, oh, it's tech investing and predominantly I would invest in companies that sold to the enterprise. And I started wondering about the meaningfulness of what I was doing as an investor, hmm. and I started seeing opportunities in education technology. Interesting. And that 
um, was one of the key insights that I had that, hey, in this field, I could actually invest in things that I had real passion around and that through my investing activity, I could support um, disruptions in education or even within venture that could make a difference socially. Yeah, it's so funny that you mentioned that because I like I feel like I've kind of followed a, a similar path in some ways. Like I also grew up as like a, a kid of like a single mom, like raising mm-hmm. my like little sister who was like seven mm-hmm. years younger than me. And uh, when I was in college, I ended up building like an ed like an ed reform ed tech group because it felt like it was like the best way to sort of go as deep as possible into really being able to solve a lot of these challenges. And then I feel like as I've sort of grown a little bit older and have had experience in the corporate world, it feels like it's almost important to also just have a seat at the table as someone who's had these experiences and who is sort of first gen and who has sort of come from a background that's usually pretty different from a lot of the folks who end up in these positions or who end up at these corporations. Yeah, I totally believe that there are too few um, women, minorities, um, people that have familiarity with being uh, low income and non-privileged, even though I feel like I've obviously become incredibly privileged through my education and my careers, uh, people that I've learned uh, from and so forth. But in terms of being able to um, have a foot in both worlds, there's just very few people that actually bring that into Mm -hmm. um, corporate life, into venture capital. uh, And I think it does give me uh, an insight into market areas, for example, that many people mm. wouldn't even perceive as market um, markets that are interesting to pursue. That's interesting. And I think it, you know, if I look at who is, where have we made the most strides? It's mm-hmm. still the case that I think we've made the most strides in the not-for-profit or government sectors mm-hmm. and, you know, to a much lesser extent in the private sector mm-hmm. and in entrepreneurship and venture capital in particular, right? Like That's if I think about being an attorney, for example, well, you know, at the time I was uh, creating uh, Google Legal, there were uh, a third women in the bar, right? And wow. uh, so... But if I think about what it's like to be a venture capitalist, well, there's only 6% women in venture capital. um, And there's very few of us that are people of color, actually. Hmm. Uh, And by comparison, the law has always been a field that had women earlier, Hmm. had minorities earlier, in part because people saw it as a way to create social change. And that's interesting. And it's always been a profession that encouraged public service, right? Each, Each attorney is individually required to Um, do 50 hours of community service um, on a pro bono basis and Hmm. so there's been a different culture of service um, in the legal field that I think exists really in the business world. Hmm. That's really that's really interesting because I look at a lot of my friends from high school I went to high school in New York City it was a it was a public school but it was a really incredible very diverse school that Mm -hmm. had a lot of people from different races and socioeconomic backgrounds Mm -hmm. and when I look at my friends I'm probably one of the only people who's ended up in the corporate world in some ways, whereas most of my friends have ended up in social work or activism or journalism in some way that's just much more much more direct in, in that service aspect. And I think, one, it's this notion that it's more direct. <laughs> I guess part of, um, part of the thing I question is whether it is, um, in part because there's such a, 
a stigma in some ways, I think, for people of color to advance in the hmm. private sector, even within our own communities, right? Yeah. Um, and that, you know, this notion of selling out is still kind of a thought hmm. that a lot of people have around um, professions where you work with money, for example. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's been hard. Uh, you know, I was raised Catholic, and so uh, there's often people <laughs> that believe that, yeah, <laughs> you know, that the money is the root of all evil, even though it's like the love of money is the root of all evil, um, yeah. is really the saying. And so my sense is that a lot of folks um, don't see this as a way to um, actually create change. Mm -hmm. But I do believe, and I think uh, Martin Luther King himself was mm -hmm. moving in this direction in terms of understanding that economic development within the African American community was actually necessary to create yeah. um, social change, mm -hmm. and that the use of the economic power of yeah. groups was going to be a real influential part of gaining the rights that you know people thought were going to be extended um, through the law. Um, but up until that point really hadn't been. And that led, it, I think, ultimately to the Civil Rights Act of 1964 uh, because people were willing to use their economic power to um, say, we're not going to use our money to support businesses where we can't be treated as equal citizens. Yeah, that's, that's really fascinating. That's such a great point. I'm wondering, did you have some of that cognitive dissonance in your early days? So you, you spent a lot of time building your own startup. You spent a lot of time at Google when it was when it was very new. And I'm wondering if you sort of felt that cognitive dissonance at that time as well. About whether or not you could um, help create social change through economic development and wealth creation? Yeah, or whether or not you sort of had doubts about whether or not you yourself were selling out or if there were folks in your community who sort of questioned the decisions you were making at that time. You know, I, I definitely think there's people that probably question me at every point in my <laughs> career or life. It, it's always been the case, I think. Um, my sense is that for me, it's been a question of whether or not I had what it takes to deal with all of the downsides of being in this profession um, mm. as an individual, because I do think within our kind of more liberal communities, there's often uh, so much focus on orthodoxy of opinion and what yeah. is really right and good and liberal <laughs> enough. Um, and then, uh, so that leads to a lot of condemnation of various approaches as opposed to a more inclusive um, approach to um, what could be of benefit in our communities. And then from the my personal point of view is you know, it's just difficult to be um, one of a very few people um, doing something and not necessarily having the social supports within uh, the profession mm -hmm. that one might have in other fields. Yeah. Like, even just as an attorney, I felt like I had such a much larger and more diverse peer group of attorneys than I have mm -hmm. in venture capital. Yeah. And definitely. so that created some, you know, just social comfort. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, there's often um, research that shows it's not because women are less capable or prepared um, that they leave uh, the STEM professions. Yeah. It's this lack of social support and the constant um, need to educate uh, the dominant uh, culture within that community that yeah, makes definitely. it just such a personal burden. 
Yeah, no, for sure. And it's interesting that you mentioned that. I recently attended a um, session that was offered by, by Stanford Psychological Services that was talking about folks who are considered trailblazers. And it's the idea of uh, sometimes you're a person who is at the intersection of many different things. Like, you're not only are you first gen, you're also a woman of color. Not only are you from a poor socioeconomic background, you're also the first in your family who has ended up working at a corporation. And it's often those intersections where it often ends up feeling the most lonely mm-hmm. in some ways because it's there just aren't other people who have already done it before. And it's harder to, to find role models for that reason because how many folks are, are sort of at the intersection of all of these things. And I'm wondering if you've sort of heard that within the within the venture capital community or within corporations, and if you've seen folks who have done an especially good job creating that sort of support network for themselves. Yeah, I definitely think people need to do this, and those that have done it tend to be more successful in remaining in these environments. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a kind of inoculation that's helpful about having these social supports um, even better if there's uh, supports within the work environment as well in terms of being able to um, remain in a dominant culture that is different from what one has grown up in Uh, and in terms of uh, some of the things that Like for myself, one of the things that I did was to copy a model from the Graduate School of Business at Stanford Mm -hmm. where an alum had created a support uh, uh, group for women and funded the ability for women to create support groups within that community. Interesting. And so that's kind of going on while you're in business school. And later on, a friend of mine started this when we were about 30 years old. And Mm -hmm. for about 20 years now, we've been meeting once a month to help uh, navigate the becoming uh, professionals, uh, working mothers, divorced parents, you know, so many of the different life stages that many of us have gone through. And I believe that without Um, that kind of support and consistency I don't know that I would have had um, as much comfort in uh, moving forward in my profession Mm -hmm. as I have because I've had that kind of support I also see that in um, young women like for example there's a group called women of color and venture capital Mm -hmm. uh, that uh, was started by a diverse group of young women who felt like they were very alone and just to get to know each other was um, such an important uh, potential factor in being able to stay in the profession. And then they've also used it as a way to network with more senior women in venture capital, as well as uh, people like myself, women, more senior women in venture capital. Mm -hmm. And so, and then for me, I found that to be um, a really great organization where Mm -hmm. I feel I want to support it so that there are going to be more women of color in venture capital um, and that they are going to have the support they need to stick it out. Yeah, definitely. Oh, that's fascinating. I I love that. Uh, Would love to to switch a little bit to Mm -hmm. uh, to talking about sort of your journey into venture capital. Mm -hmm. And um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your experience at Google where you were with Google when they were when they were pretty small, right? They were in like the the triple digits at that point in terms of yeah. We ha- I came in as a employee, 160, so oh, wow. pretty early on, and the second attorney at Google 
they were still all in one building. Yeah. Uh, they used Hard to make their rack servers that. in the hallways. Yeah, <laughs> they hadn't taken over all of Mountain View. Um, so it was really a, a relative startup. And at that time, you know, it was a, it was a fascinating place to work. And it also had its, uh, you know, it was the fastest growing company in the history of America at that point. Um, yeah. And helping to make that uh, continue to happen was a big part of um, the role that I had is how can we um, continue to generate revenue and generate revenue as quickly as possible. I think a lot of people don't realize that um, unlike a lot of companies now, Google only raised one round of financing. Um, it oh, raised wow. $25 yeah, million. You're, you're, you're totally right. <laughs> and it largely grew organically through revenue mm-hmm. generation. So um, for me, it was just a fascinating experience uh, because I was helping to kind of create new business models that mm-hmm. hadn't existed in um, in the internet and also uh, helping to figure out how can you um, help foment revenue velocity, which is a concept that um, I came up with at Google for how I could be of personal service to the organization in terms of making making the contracting process and the ability to um, get our customers up and running go that much faster. Hmm. That's interesting. Could you talk more about that particular technique and process? Yeah. So so the basic concept is how can you... um, make it as quick as possible for your customers to do business with you Hmm. what are the kind of hurdles that get in the way and so you know some of them are very simple hurdles like uh, we had an eight-page contract with eight pages there's a lot of stuff to talk about so I took that down to one page Hmm. Um, also um, we had not had a dedicated team that Hmm. was in charge of Um, ad revenue and so helping develop a more specialized team that could more quickly um, process things and was uh, more familiar with it was Mm -hmm. uh, an important part of uh, making the process go faster. We also developed metrics and actually had measurements around Mm -hmm. um, various stages in the process like um, how long does it take us to um, direct a contract to an individual Mm -hmm. and uh, how long does it take them to respond to that yeah. internal client? How long does it take to close a contract? And yeah. we're measuring everything so that we could take what had been on average a seven-day process yeah. um, down to the point where 50% of our contracts were closing within one day yeah. and 80% within three. Yeah. Uh, we also wow. kind of created ways for things to just completely move out of legal so that they mm-hmm. could be done cheaper, faster, um, and by less uh, experienced resources. Hmm. Uh, so just complete re-engineering of yeah. our process to focus on uh, making doing business with us faster. The two main things there, it sounds like, are one is to simplify as much as possible, and the second part of that is to really use data as much as possible to inform processes, which is which is really interesting. I'm wondering, how has that data-driven approach sort of impacted your investing? Because you were with Google while Google went from 200 employees to over 15,000 employees, and then uh, over the years you've moved into venture capital. So I'm wondering, how have you used your data-driven metrics to inform your investing? That's a good question. I think one of the things that differentiates us at Ulu is that we do use a data-driven approach to making investments. Uh, One, 
we start with a market map um, exercise that we do in a room with the entrepreneurs or the co-founding team. Uh, we basically develop a strong total addressable market story that um, can be uh, vetted uh, with real data from the real mm -hmm. world. Um, we try to develop projections of the opportunity for that company over its life cycle. Mm -hmm. uh, and that approach has really had an impact in terms of uh, the success of our investing. So yeah. we did um, A-B testing mm -hmm. on our process where oh, we wow. used it in yeah. 44 investments and we didn't use it in 20 investments. Hmm. And what we found was where we didn't use the process, our failure rate on those companies to date has been 50%. Oh, wow, and where really? we did use it on our companies, we've had a failure rate of 10% to date. So we think it allows us to put better investments into the pipeline, if you will, yeah. and get better results at the end. Hmm, that's interesting. And are you doing these exercises with entrepreneurs as they're sort of starting out in the process or, or how do you? Yeah, we're typically seed stage investors. So yeah. this is pretty early on. And for many of them, it's a way for them to do a brain dump of all that they've been holding about why they think this is a great opportunity, what they're afraid might happen with the market, what could yep. go wrong. And we're doing it in a probabilistic fashion. Mm -hmm. So we're putting ranges for the uncertainty associated with being able to hit certain um, metrics or outcomes. Yeah. And at the end, we're um, driven in part by a hurdle rate expectation that we would have of an mm -hmm. opportunity. And I think the thing that's really cool about this for me is that we look at both the risks and the upside of an investment opportunity. Interesting. And that, we think, allows us to have less bias in our decision-making process altogether. The structuring aspect of this also is um, been developed in part to reduce cognitive bias in decision making. The outcome of this is that we have a much more diverse than average portfolio. Mm -hmm. There's data that indicates that when VCs are interviewing men versus women, they ask different kinds of questions. And with women, they tend to focus on risk. Yeah, with men, definitely. they focus on opportunity. And so what happens is if you're focused on risk, you're already inclined not to invest hmm. because you're only looking at the downside. Yeah. If you're only looking at the upside, you're more inclined to invest. We think that it's important to look at both. And what happens is that we get more women in our portfolio as a result of looking at both. We also get more minorities, immigrants, and uh, underrepresented minorities in our portfolio. That's fascinating. Uh, I've I've read that Ulu's uh, first fund had a, a five times multiplier, which is uh, which means that it's a fund that has returned five times the initial investment. That's almost twice the industry standard for for top performers. Would you say that what you just described is kind of your secret sauce? I would say that there's two aspects that are a secret sauce. One mm -hmm. is that being data driven, mm -hmm. and the other is actually investing in more diverse entrepreneurs. That's incredible. I would love to hear, hear a little bit more about your, your sourcing process. How are you getting these awesome entrepreneurs who are coming to you who you can invest in? Because a lot of times you hear in the Valley that it's a sourcing problem, that there just aren't enough women or just aren't enough entrepreneurs of color who are coming to the pipeline for folks to invest in. The pipeline is such a kind of a false notion to me, mm -hmm. in part because 
when you're talking about venture capital, you're talking about 1% of the population of entrepreneurs in the entire United States. The groups, for example, uh, women have had equal or higher participation in higher education for potentially decades. Mm-hmm. So it's not that there is a pipeline of women that's a problem. Yeah. Um, and even if you only looked at um, STEM fields, uh, you would still have a huge population relative to a 1% of um, dollars and people that get venture capital. <laughs> uh, and the same is true f- even for you know, Latinos who may have one of the lowest levels of um, higher education in the country with about 15% of Latinos having access to higher education and, you know, graduate studies, etc. Yeah. So my sense is, okay, when you're talking about that big a multiplier, mm-hmm. um, pipeline is not really the issue, but the issue is, um, do you end up discouraging people from actually pursuing a certain path Mm-hmm. And do you eliminate them when they are um, on the path? Yeah. And are there ways that you can uh, incent people uh, to pursue venture ca- uh, capital um, intelligently? One, uh, most people should not be pursuing venture capital. Yeah. It's a very mm-hmm. small shot yeah. um, for anyone to uh, get access to it. Mm-hmm. And two, it's typically designed for real outlier performance type of companies yeah Uh, and the reason for that is the extreme failure rate of uh, even venture-backed startups if you think about it uh, Cambridge Associates says that about two and a half percent of venture capital investments generate almost all of the profit in the entire industry so that's That's crazy (laughs) it is two and a half percent out of four thousand transactions are representing almost all the profit in the industry wow so therefore um you are both unlikely to get venture capital and it's unlikely to help you succeed (laughs) so you really have to have um something extraordinary that's happening in your company that helps to generate such an outlier return Mm -hmm. that you can help a portfolio of investments do well even when most of them are going to fail yeah the most successful Mm -hmm. venture capitalists in the country Mm -hmm. have a success rate of about four and a half percent of their investments are generating Mm -hmm. about two-thirds of their profits as firms oh wow that's the best in the industry and so Therefore, um, you should understand that you really do need a hockey stick type of company mm-hmm. that really is able to potentially generate a billion dollars worth of market cap and or revenue mm-hmm. ultimately um, if you're going to um, be one of those outliers in venture capital. Yeah, wow, that's, that's really incredible. Those, those numbers sound crazy. I'm wondering, so you've had some some very major, major exits with your entrepreneurs. Of course, two of them have been really interesting Latino entrepreneurs. Crux for $700 million acquired by Salesforce and Blue River Technology more recently acquired by uh, John Deere. So I'm wondering, what are some of the things that you've noticed among your most successful entrepreneurs and their companies? Well, <laughs> I think one of the concepts that is perhaps helpful from other areas has been this notion of grit or distance traveled in that 
um, there's a disproportionate weight um, of success, for example, among groups where they've had a lot of hurdles to overcome. And that makes sense, um, both because learning to navigate um, complex environments, to be resilient, are all things that are really helpful as entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true of the entrepreneurs in our portfolio um, and myself. You know, if I think mm -hmm. about the kinds of uh, struggles uh, of growing up in a family with very limited education, uh, my parents were migrant farm workers and then factory workers, mm -hmm. and then um, how did how did you become a Fortune 500 vice president by the time you're 40? Yeah. Um, tons of hard work, resilience, um, and the ability to um, learn and be able to navigate complexity. And so we see a lot of those characteristics as being really important to the success of our entrepreneurs. And recently there was even a study done amongst the unicorn companies, those that are valued at a billion dollars or more, and it was demonstrated that about half of them had at least one immigrant co-founder, Wow, which is obviously overweight yeah. <laughs> to the population of the country, right? Yeah. Um, and my sense is that um, it's because of those kinds of characteristics of people that are able to take such risks of leaving their home country, of being able to develop systems to become successful within another environment, um, of being able to develop relationships with um, folks different from themselves, and all of the kind of stereotypes that we have about immigrants uh, being hardworking, uh, being resilient, uh, being like not willing to accept failure, being willing to do things that others don't want to do. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's uh, that's all really, really on point and I think makes a, a lot of sense. I have two questions since we're nearing the end of our, uh, of our podcast. So one of them is, what advice do you have for people of color who are interested in breaking into the VC world as venture capitalists? Because I also wonder if some of the demographics in the VC world would change if there were more folks of color, more immigrants, more individuals with diverse backgrounds also doing some of that sourcing. Yes. It really seems to make a difference. Um, there are both uh, some published work around, uh, for example, funds that have women partners do tend to invest um, more in women, at mm -hmm. least the early data is showing that. Um, uh, Lo Tony, who's a partner at GV, has also done research that indicates that people of color do tend to invest more in entrepreneurs of color. So there's a positive correlation with diversity in venture firms and the results of their investing activity. In terms of um, breaking into the field, I, you know, there are some well-worn paths into uh, venture capital and uh, some really idiosyncratic ones. Uh, and I'd say that it's kind of funny, but maybe they're each just as common as the other. Hmm. So the well-worn paths are um, investment banking background. Uh, another one might be corporate venture background. It's much easier, it seems to me, for diverse people to break into corporate venture than it is to break into Sand Hill Road. Um, but once they have that investing experience, they can make the transition into firms or perhaps uh, um, go and raise funds of their own. 
Um, another is, uh, you know, to be a junior person in a venture firm, hard as that may be, to, yeah. um, to access, um, that is a well-worn path. Um, the other is to be a venture-backed entrepreneur yourself or a co-founder at a venture-backed company. And again, uh, those are hard things to do, but you can start off um, in one firm or another um, and then potentially work your way up to a co-founder role over time. Um, and also having worked at some company that is you know, pre-IPO and becomes a really successful um, company gives you more opportunities coming out of that company uh, than more traditional roles like uh, you know consulting or um, other uh, kinds of uh, businesses so you know if you're somebody who worked at Google pre-IPO your chance of being venture backable seems to be higher mm -hmm. same would be true of Facebook and mm -hmm. part of it is that you now have developed relationships with people who could potentially back you yeah. in doing a startup company and who know you um, and I think that that's still fundamental um, in mm -hmm. terms of uh, being able to access venture capital as a career path is to um, develop relationships with um, folks that are doing it are able to fund um, companies whether it be as angels or um, through corporate venture that kind of thing those are those are really great points and that's really really great advice and the other piece of the question is, what advice would you have for entrepreneurs who are trying to find funding for their company and whether or not they should pursue the VC route or whether they should pursue an angel funding route or bootstrap? Like, what are some of your ideas around that? So an idea that has the prospect of like genuinely being a billion dollar market cap company, you should pursue venture capital. If you can see a way to build a company that could generate um, $100 million of revenue, that's another uh, point where you would really think about wanting to raise venture capital. Now, I think there's two things going on here. Um, one of which is to um, really spend time in the development of your idea to assess its market potential. Um, and if you really think that you want to do a venture-backed company, which is not what most people do, um, then uh, trying to work with your idea or your area of passion and figuring out the opportunity that really could generate that kind of um, market cap or um, revenue is really critical um, to being able to attract venture capital. Now, there's a lot of opportunities that might be that and still might have a hard time um, accessing capital, especially in markets where the mainstream venture capitalist may be unfamiliar, which is one reason why I think, you know, it seems like women get back to do beauty related mm -hmm. companies at such a higher rate yeah. <laughs> in venture <laughs> than I would expect yeah, in yeah. many ways, um, because I think it's a comfortable field where people think, oh, women will know this market. Oh, um, that's painful. <laughs> it's painful, but I, I think there's something going on there yeah. um, compared to you know women in enterprise software or women in other fields. Um, and but my sense is that uh, you know the an entrepreneur uh, can build a company organically through angel financing through um, uh, now I'm forgetting uh, crowdfunding for example. 
So in my experience, entrepreneurs um, can build companies through angel financing, through crowdfunding, uh, through friends and family rounds, and take them uh, to a point where they're often later on able to access capital um, and to retain more control of their companies as a result. One of the um, studies that came out of Willamette University, there's a professor there who studies uh, angel-backed companies, is that angel-backed companies can grow to the same size as venture-backed companies, it just often takes longer. And that venture capital should be seen as an accelerant of an idea that already is able to um, spread very quickly and to be scalable. You can check out Miriam's writing on Huffington Post. For learnings from our conversations with our awesome guests, check me out on Medium or LinkedIn. Thanks for listening and looking forward to seeing you next week.